So I went up to do one gig. I left nearly five years later and 17 movies later, including Star Wars. Back at Digital Magic, I'd also gotten to work on MacGyver. So we got to work on Star Trek, MacGyver, and Star Wars with George. You and I worked on four films together. It was an amazing experience. A total dream come true to work there and meet all these people including you, who were people that I had looked up to for a long time. And all of a sudden you were my colleagues and friends, and that was amazing. It's quite a feeling when you first start working at Industrial Light and Magic, and you realize that all these people who've done the work that you have just idolized, you know, Jurassic Park and The Abyss, and now they're sitting right next to you. And yeah. you, you can just ask them questions over your shoulder anytime. The first time I met Dennis Muren, I tend not to get starstruck, but meeting Dennis just blew my mind. There's just some people in this business who are absolute legends and without whom none of us would have jobs. And so to be able to work with those people and know them as friends is a really amazing thing. I was very lucky to have gotten to work with Doug Trumbull on the Luxor project. Yeah. Got, to, got to be friends with Doug and saw him just a few months before he passed away. Oh, really? I wrote a little piece about that for the companion. I saw you have a photograph of yourself with Doug. It was a screening in Los Angeles of Silent Run. He came to that and he spoke afterwards and so I got to meet him there. But that's the amazing thing about this business that it doesn't really matter where you start. You don't have to be from Hollywood. And certainly now, with the way the industry has gone thanks to COVID, you don't have to be in Hollywood at all. You can be anywhere in the world and you can still be a great contributor to this business. Growing up in Australia, the, some of the biggest days of the year were the days when the new Cinefix magazine came out. That was my Bible. I read them cover to cover and I knew every name of every person in every facility. There were so many people that I admired and I emulated their work and stuff that I was doing in Melbourne as best I could with the tools that I had. Most of those people are now my friends. Just the fact that you can work in a business where you get to meet your heroes and you get to work with them. You have amazing moments where your hero will ask you your advice on something. <laughs> It blows me away. I remember sitting with Doug and discussing an effect that he wanted, and I just couldn't believe that Doug Trumbull was asking me my opinion. It's amazing when you get to do that. I'm looking at your IMDb right now. After Master and Commander, there was Peter Pan, and then there was Van Helsing. Yeah. And Day After Tomorrow. One of the things that I like to have people talk about is what did you work on? What particular shots did you work on? A Master and Commander ended up being a lot of shots. The majority of that film, we were doing water replacement, ocean replacement. Van Helsing, I did most of the animation of Frankenstein's head when he's got the electricity going off in his head. Oh. There's a big shot of the brides of Dracula moving in on Kate Beckinsale, and they both come down to water and their jaws extend and the vampire fangs come out. A couple of shots of one of the brides turning flames against the building as she's hit by stakes from Hugh Jackman. I think just about everybody in the company worked on that shot. I was doing little pieces of ash and stuff falling off it. There was a fun shot in that film where her brother turns into a werewolf and he's pushing himself backwards up the wall. Oh, and that's a great shot too. Yeah, yeah. But in that shot, I remember we had an amazing, I think, Japanese woman who was working on code to do stretching skin so he could like rip skin from his chest and pull it off. She'd been working on it for quite a while. It just wasn't cutting it for what everybody wanted. And so I said to the guys, why don't we just go old school? Why don't we just get some plasticine? We took some yellow plasticine down on C stage against the blue screen. And we just like stretched these different thicknesses of plasticine until they would snap. And then I took those pieces and rotated them around in Inferno and stretched them on the skin and blended them in and color corrected them. And so the skin that's stretching up this thing is just lumps of plasticine on top of this incredibly sophisticated CG animation that was being done. That's the other thing about this business, that it's all going to be digitally put together. 
But sometimes doing it old school is the better way to do it. I was working on a movie called Unknown a few years ago, supervising that film uh, with Liam Neeson. And we had a shot of the Hotel Adelon in Berlin. They were talking about doing it as a CG thing. And I said, no, let's build a miniature. We built a 20-foot high miniature in London and they blew it up and it's in the movie and it's perfect. And the beauty of doing those things is you call cut and it's done. It goes straight into the film. In-camera work. Anytime you can get it done that way. So then other films, Day After Tomorrow, where I also got to work with Dennis again. My big shot on Day was the big overhead shot, the Statue of Liberty, frozen with the cast moving through the snow. That was an incredibly hard shot. Taking assets from another house that had been working on it, and they'd taken it away and given it to us, adding all the snow drifts and things coming off the peaks of her hat. Then we did things like Pacifier and Triple X, shots of trains exploding in Triple X, Pirates of the Caribbean, Dead Man's Chest. Uh, one of my favorite shots that I worked on was one where Jack Sparrow is tied to a bamboo pole wedged between two cliffs and he's trying to shake himself off the thing he's like 50 feet up and all of a sudden he unravels and he drops to the ground there's a tight close-up of him hitting the ground framed like here looking up and he looks at camera lying down as a bamboo post goes <laughs> and just wedges into the ground in front of him i was under the understanding that i had to get the shot done very quickly i didn't have a bamboo pole i didn't have any elements of grass or anything like that so i painted the grass I painted the bamboo pole and I flew it in like three frames and gave it a wobble and animated some dirt kicking up and the grass displaced and submitted the shot. And that was maybe three hours of work. A few days later, I got an email saying, okay, all your roto's ready. I said, what roto? <laughs> and then he said, well, the roto and the match move and all that stuff's all been done. And I said, oh, guys, the shot's done. It's in the movie. We never used any of that stuff because the shot had just been made quickly because it needed to be. Take a moment and explain to our listeners what you mean when you say compositing. If I'm doing public speaking about this, I refer to myself as a glorified sandwich maker. What you want when you make a sandwich is to have a really nice final product that, that looks appealing and feels right. The process of compositing is taking multiple elements that have been created in different areas, whether they're a live action foreground element, sometimes a live action background element, totally different elements shot at different days, different years sometimes, matte paintings, CG animation, forced perspective elements, any kind of element that's been created by any department of the film. And you take all of these disparate elements and you layer them one on top of the other. Your job as a compositor is to blend them all together and make them feel like they all belong in the one space. You have to have a thorough understanding of light and shade and reflectivity and all the really subtle cues that your brain knows to tell you it's real. If you looked at it as an untrained eye, you wouldn't know what was wrong with it if those things weren't in there. You'd know that there was something wrong with it, which is why people in the early days of CG would be, oh God, CG is crap. It, it all looks terrible. I can always tell when something's CG. No, you can't. Because if something's done CG and it's done perfectly, you can't tell at all. Sometimes we're limited by budget in not being able to put all the final little tweaks in. I used to say to one of the guys that I was working with, who was a fine artist, he would try and make every single frame a work of art. In those days, television, I said, we're doing 30 frames a second. It's got to work in the space of a second. You're not going to look at the single frames. Just make it feel right in motion. Once you can step away from making everything look perfect in a still frame and realize that you can create incredible illusion in one frame that is very rough. One of my favorite examples of that is the old Bugs Bunny cartoons. When Bugs Bunny's shaking his head in motion, it looks like he's shaking his head. But if you go to the middle of the shake and stop on it, he's got a mouth that's about this wide with 100 teeth and he's got eight eyes because they couldn't paint motion blur. 
because it was all hand-drawn. So they cheated it with that. And the brain is an incredible thing. And so in compositing, we get to take the tools that we have and the elements that we have. We just use whatever tricks we can with color correction or layering to fool the brain into believing that what they're looking at is real. And like you said a moment ago, when you have different elements that were shot at different times, one element maybe should be casting a shadow onto another element. So right. you have to go in there as a compositor and create that shadow. Yeah, exactly. The funny thing happened on the two films at ILM. One was Mission Impossible 3. I was working on a shot where Tom Cruise has been flying through Shanghai on his parachute and he smashes through a window and lands on a desk at a table. And then there's a shot from the end of the table looking like down his legs as he gets sucked back out the window out into Shanghai again because the, an updraft caught the parachute. We'd been working on this thing for a while. All of Shanghai was CG. And I was doing all the neon signs everywhere, painting all that stuff and then putting it all in the shots. And, you know, neon reflects everywhere. So we were painting reflections on all the buildings and making all that work. I was about to submit the shot. This is the last day of delivery. And I called them and went, hey, guys, stop everything. I can't submit this shot. All of that focus has been on what was outside the window. And it was only when I was just doing my final QC of the shot, quality check of everything, I realized that there was a piece of black duvetine taped to the wall over on the side that was there to, to stop some reflection that they didn't want. And none of us had noticed it. In all the days and days and days I've been working on this shot, none of us had even seen that. I had to quickly paint a section of wall and comp it over the top of that, so that was gone. Then we submitted the shot and it was done. Another one was Chronicles of Narnia. There's a shot toward the end of the film where the little boy, the three kids, is lying down on the ground and he's been knocked out. The little girl comes up with his little glass vial and pours this magic liquid into his mouth and he comes back to consciousness they realized at the 11th hour that there's no liquid in the bottle and it's a tight close-up by this time we'd left kerner and we were working at the LM facility at the presidio they said is there anything you can do with this and so i, I just took some splines and i animated some fluid fully inspired by the bolero sequence in one of my favorite animated films allegro non troppo where the sludge of the coca-cola is making its way out of the coke bottle so i took that as inspiration and i animated this thing coming out and then comp the highlights of the glass back over the top and i looked at it again recently and you can't tell it's not real that's a good example now somebody might say okay well we'll go and we'll do a full fluid sim and that's going to take days and you literally have minutes to create something and days are not an option so you've got to be able to come up with a quick solution that's going to look completely photographically real. When you say we had been looking at this shot and nobody noticed that, you sit in that screening room, you watch that shot over and over and over with 20 people. 40 or 50 people. And the visual yeah. supervisors looking at every little place. It's amazing that something could escape so many people for, yeah. for that long. The next thing I see is Star Wars Episode Three: Revenge of the Sith. Many, many shots in that film spread throughout the entire film. One of the main things I did was I designed the look of the holograms, particularly Yoda sitting in the conference room where they're all sitting in the round room, the scan line glitchy thing for Yoda. And then we applied that to all the holograms. I had one shot. It should have been a pretty standard shot. It's a shot of Padme telling Anakin that she's pregnant. So they're in this big hallway of big columns over his shoulder looking at her. And he puts his hand up to her face and holds her face as she's telling him again, I'm so happy, this is wonderful. The problem with the shot was that George had shot it three times. Once he got into editorial, he decided, well, I want to use Hayden from one and her from the other and the hand from another. And none of them lined up. He had thin, wispy hair that was covering her face and the hand that he wanted to use and the timing that he wanted to use, it occluded her face in its own take. But in the face that he was using of her, her face was back here. 
instead of her face cutting the, the fingers off here, her face was back here in the final comp. So when the hand went in, they vanished this far <laughs> from her face. I went to John Nolan and said, mate, what am I going to do? And he goes, I don't know. You'll come up with something. I said, can I use my hand? And he goes, sure. John had just bought this brand spanking new 12 megapixel DSLR camera, which was just a magnificent piece of equipment. And I said, can I borrow your camera? I was driving a Jeep at the time at Kona at the old location. And so I drove into the parking lot around the back of the building and taped some green screen to the back of my Jeep. I printed out different frames of the hand so that I knew what the lighting was and what the position of the hand was relative to camera. And then I literally just held the camera handhold on motor drive just moving my hand into frame all these times until I knew that I had something that would roughly approximate Hayden Christensen's hand. Took those still frames into Inferno, loaded them up and cut them out of the green screen. In the final shot, when the hand comes sliding in, it's my hand, except for the, this part, which is Hayden, and the thumb, which is Hayden, but all of this is my hand. But that goes behind her face. When it comes out, it's his hand. This is like a switch I change up. We had another shot of Emperor Palpatine as a hologram on one of the war tables toward the end of the film. For some reason, they had either not shot that element or it had been forgotten or it had been lost or whatever. I mean, there was so much stuff going on in that film. It's a miracle that it ever was able to be kept track of. But they didn't have that element with Palpatine. I said, well, do we have the costume? And amazingly, the costumes had just arrived back in the San Rafael that day from Sydney where they'd been shooting the movie. They dug out the costume and I put it on. Sam Edwards got his video camera and he put it on a tripod and I stood on the picnic table outside of the building against the white wall. That became the element of Palpatine and then I made it a hologram and stuck it on there and so I'm in the movie twice, which is also <laughs> an ILM tradition, which I'm sure you've been part of as well. We all ended up in the movies when bits and pieces were missing. I left ILM and I went off to be co-visual effects supervisor on Rush Hour 3 with Jackie Chan. After that, I did a couple of other films and then I ended up in the central coast of California supervising the Harry Potter theme park ride for Universal Studios. While we were working on that, my friend Pat McClung was the lead supervisor on Wolverine. They had had some difficulty with one of the houses that was working on the film and decided that they wanted to redo all the blades coming out of Wolverine's hands. There were maybe 50 shots that had to be done from scratch. I pulled all of my crew off Harry Potter for three weeks with Universal's approval. And we just hunkered down. We had to track all the shots and render the animation and work out how to make it look like the metal that it needed to be. We did every single blade shot in that film. And then big shots like him on the motorcycle exploding out of the barn. That was a fun film. Cool. And then we went back to Harry Potter. That's when you got to take pictures with the three stars. Yeah, the three of them were really lovely. I got to go to London for a few weeks. We went down to Leavesden Studios. They were shooting the final two films they were nearly finished shooting the seventh film and they were about to start shooting the eighth we had a very small team at cafe fx who were doing the work on harry potter a small team of brilliant people we had done a lot of previs for that because we had to go to london and work with john richardson's mechanical rig that he flew the kids on to do the broomstick shots for those of you who haven't seen the ride at universal it's a, a big chase sequence where you're sitting in a church pew and it's flying around the grounds of hogwarts chasing harry and ron on broomsticks while they look for the Lost Dragon. We had to shoot Harry and Ron on the broomstick rig. So we had to build an entire CG Hogwarts, which had never been done before. So I was talking to the production designer, which version do you want me to use? Because what most people don't know is that in every single one of the films, Hogwarts is different. He loved changing it in each film and like the astronomy towers like rotated a little bit. It's got some extra windows and different staircases and different bridges and he just kept on adding to it and improving it as the years went by. And he said, well, ultimately, it should look like eight. And I said, well, is it designed yet? He goes, no. <laughs> I said, so it's not going to look like eight. 
Um, can it look like seven? He agreed to that. So it, what we ended up building was kind of a hybrid between six and seven. He sent me all the blueprints for the castle. We spent close to two and a half years doing that project. We built an entire CG Hogwarts castle, the Black Forest, the lake, everything was an entire CG asset, all built in Maya. And we were using Houdini for a lot of the water effects and smoke effects and Dementor effects and basically using every tool in the book. We might have composited in Nuke. I had three compositors working for me on that show. Each one of them had one shot to work on for two and a half years. 28 second long shot, but all they did was just work on one shot for all that time. So keeping morale going was a big part of that show. Those shots technically are incredibly complex. The way they work in the ride is there's a, a hemispherical dome, which is 20 feet high, and you're in a little bench plugged into the middle of it on the end of the robotic KUKA arm. These arms that were originally designed to manufacture motor cars, and now we use them in theme park rides all the time. Each one of the domes was one of five on a turntable, so they, they were all slowly turning all the time. And there was a track around the bench would plug in, and it would be rotating with the dome, and then it would peel off and go into the next animation or a next real set piece or whatever it was. Within the dome, within the 20 feet, the projector was only hanging eight inches down from the top. It couldn't be in the center where you would think you'd put a projector, for a dome because that's where the people were. It couldn't be attached to the people's rig because the rig was moving independently of the dome. So it had to be attached to the dome. So we had to work out the math of what would happen to images that were projected with a special offset lens that would project the image down to the bottom of the dome and all the way through, but keep the same pixel size all the way through, even though in the reality, the the pixels at the bottom of the frame were much smaller than the pixels at the top of the frame. So that when they unwrapped on the dome, they all became the same size. And because of the distance and the offset of the lens, it was incredibly bright at the top and almost nothing at the bottom. And so the rendered images looked absolutely bizarre. The color space was just very, very wrong. They were almost black at the top and they were really blown out at the bottom. But when you projected it within the dome, it all flattened out and became real color. These poor animators and compositors were working in this color space that was just a total mind warp. We had a full dome rig set up in a warehouse in Santa Maria, California. We'd just walk up on the platform and stand there and project it and see if it worked. Big CG challenge. And it's still playing. It's still one of the highest grossing theme park rides in the world. I see Twilight Saga, parts one and two, as of visual effects suits. That was assisting John Bruno, who was the lead supervisor on that film, and then Terry Wendell and Phil Tippett. Phil was there from Tippett doing The Wolves, and we were handling everything else. One of the main sequences that I was involved with was a huge battle sequence in the snow. We shot it in Louisiana in an old cattle barn. It was like a cattle showroom where they'd sell cows. The building smelt like cows the whole time. We were there for a couple of months and it was just brutal. And on top of that, it was paper snow. Every type of synthetic snow that we could use was on the ground and then in the air. And it was completely surrounded by green screen, which was all very brightly lit because it had to be midday for the fight. We'd walk out of there at the end of the day and our eyes are just bleeding. Not, not literally, but virtually because... Because all we could see was like green and white all day. We didn't realize the danger of shooting in a building like that with paper flake snow and potato flake snow uh, because the paper flakes almost vaporize into a very fine mist which you couldn't see. And so we were breathing that in. For, so for a while, some of us were getting sick from that. So we all had to wear respirators for that. There's one famous day where we had a sequence coming up where one of the heads had to be thrown into a fire. We couldn't actually shoot it in the building because if we put a naked flame in the building, the whole thing was going to blow up with all of us inside it. So we had to build a small set piece outside and shoot that at nighttime in the pouring rain. 
with fake snow on the ground that was all getting soggy and looking terrible. It's in the movie and it works and it looks fantastic, but the stuff we went through to make it happen was crazy. We had one sequence on that where we'd built a rock wall. The main character has to climb up during one of the fight sequences. But they built it out of wood and plaster and all the stuff that you normally use to create a set piece like that. I think we were going to shoot it on a Saturday and they finished building it on a Friday. We all went home for the night, and when we came back the next day, there'd been a massive thunderstorm that night. The rain had just bucketed down on this thing that was sitting outside because they wanted to shoot it against the night sky so that it didn't need a sky comp. All the plaster had, had soaked all the water up, and it crushed the entire set and collapsed the sizzle lift and destroyed the set. So we got there the next morning and there was no set. It was all just destroyed. So we had to rebuild that and do it inside. But we did the walls. We did all the interaction between the main characters. A lot of eye replacement for contact lens stuff when the actors didn't want to go with contacts. The vampires had very specific looks for their eyes. So we had to do that work. Something that I'm really excited to ask you about Cosmos. Yeah. I just got to say, at one point in my career, I got to actually work with Carl Sagan. Oh, wow. I was lead visual effects supervisor. Uh, there were like 12 or 13 episodes. I was on at the beginning of the show, and then I, I left about three quarters of the way through. It was an amazing show. Working with Neil deGrasse Tyson is just a dream because the guy is just genius. It's amazing to sit down and have dinner with somebody like Neil, which I did many times. You can talk about anything, any subject, and his insight into those particular things are just astounding. And when you're talking about science and mathematics, I mean, his conversations were incredible. The challenge with that show was to visualize the great cosmic calendar, all the things that had been seen in the original 70s series with Carl, but give it a really updated look we spent a long time making it all look the way it is it's beautiful to see that it's on disney plus now i'm very proud of that series what are your favorites one or two shots my favorite one ultimately is the cosmic calendar it's just a brilliant concept the history of the cosmos it's amazing to take the entire history of the cosmos and in just man on the street terms compress it into 12 months so that the very first second of january 1st is the big bang and the very last second of the last day of the year is right now. You could say that humans developed on like June 23rd and the pyramids were born here. It puts such an easily accessible perception of what that time frame is, which otherwise is really inaccessible to anybody's brain because it's so massive. And just working out how to shoot green screen elements of Neil. Also working on the ship of the imagination, which was fun and building that set, working out what it needed to look like and how it would move. And then I was involved in designing the main titles. My original concept was starting right inside an eyeball, treating the edges of the retina like the surface of a planet is flying over those tiny little details and then pulling out of it and ultimately revealing an eyeball that then became the, the cosmos space image i remember watching that the first time and going god i love these graphics i wonder who did that one of the things that i love at the very end the word cosmos goes off into the distance and the beginning c and the s come together before it leaves and that's Carl Sagan. Yeah, exactly. I saw that right away. I just want to say, somebody noticed. Thank you. I'm glad. The executive producer of the series was Andreanne, who's Carl's widow. Her insight into all of that is massive. Her knowledge in her own right is extraordinary. Working with her and Brandon Braga and Jason Clark and Neil, all those guys, it was, it was a great experience. After that, I see Birdman, Selfless, Pee Wee. Yeah. I loved working on Pee Wee's Big Holiday because Pee Wee's Playhouse was always a favorite show of mine in the late 80s, early 90s. 
working on that film was really fun and working with Paul Rubens was amazing. Paul has become a dear friend. He was actually out here in Florida about three weeks ago. We had dinner with him, which was great. It's really fun. Paul will say something a certain way. It's like, oh, it's Pee Wee. He's such a great guy. I love Paul. From a challenging point of view, right alongside the challenges of Titanic, Birdman was an unbelievably complex film. For people who have not seen the film, the entire film is one continuous shot long before 1917 was made. It was based on a, a Russian film that had been made many years ago that tried to do the same thing. And Hitchcock had done the same kind of thing in, I think, in Rear Window and Rope. This was an entire movie that was one continuous shot. The director of photography, Emmanuel Lubezki, was the guy really driving the process of that. Alejandro Gonzalez Inarito was the director and it was his vision to make it all happen. So I was on as the supervisor of the film to work out how we made that happen. The biggest challenge that we had on Birdman was that there was no motion control on the film at all. The entire film is handheld. Wow. For example, there's a shot with Michael Keaton walking out of his dressing room, down a corridor, down the stairs, through the backstage, onto the stage, across the stage, out the other door, into the street, up the street, into a bar. The dressing room that he walks out of was built on a soundstage underneath the stages that they shoot Sesame Street in Queens. The staircase that he's walking down is a small staircase in the St. James Theatre in New York. The stage is in a completely separate part of that theatre. Then he walks straight across that through the backstage area on the other side, walks out the door. But as he walks out the door, there's a hookup in there as well to a different take. And then as he walks down the street, they walk past a drama and there's a separate hookup because the director wanted to use different performances and couldn't use the ones in the continuous take. So we had to blend all these pieces. Traditionally, what you do in shows like that is you use old school techniques like you go behind somebody's back. And you can cut or dissolve to another dark subject. And it looks like you've done a continuous move. But in these, why Chivo framed everything? It was all right there in frame. You had nowhere to cheat. He would hold the camera with his viewfinder. And I would stand next to him with a little playback monitor. And say we were going from shot A to shot B. I would have shot A on a loop. And he'd be watching it, especially toward the end of the shot. Say, okay, so that's roll, tilt, roll. He would just optically match his camera to what he was seeing on the view screen next to me. Then we get it into post and we blend them all together. And there are some shots where we just do it like a, a two-frame dissolve from one to the other. And you cannot tell. It was a ship. A lot of little CG help. It was an amazing achievement for camera because Chivo was a genius. We had a lot of shots that were very, 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 very difficult. The first day I arrived in New York, they said to me, so we've got this shot we want to do. The camera starts off, goes down the spiral staircase uh, into the perms where they make out on the perms. And the camera goes over their heads and drops down through all the flying set pieces to the stage and then moves across the stage right up to Michael Keaton's face. How are we going to do that? Hi, guys. Nice to meet you. Um, <laughs> so we can pre this and we can do some rough layout and work out how the camera needs to move and how we do the hookups between things. And they said, well, how long is that going to take? And I said, well, it'll take a few days to do the pre and then we need to export that move into a motion control rig. And at this point, I didn't know that we, did. we had no motion control on the show. And the producer looked at me and he said, well, that's lovely, but we're shooting this in 20 minutes. How are we doing it? <laughs> okay. Um, <clears throat> so, do we have a grips department available right now? Yes. Do we have a stunt department? Yes. Does the stunt department have a descender rig? Yes. Get them all in here right now. And so, between those all, we designed this thing affectionately called the Trojan Horse. And it was a big wooden cage on huge rubber wheels that had about five guys on the back of it to just jump on it and push it so that it had weight so that it would move through the set. The initial shot was the camera handheld on one side by me, handheld on the other side by Chivo. 
going down the staircase, following the two lovers as they walk through this little doorway and then start making out. So we were puppeteering the camera over the top of them. And then we rotate it around and pull it off the back of the set. While we're doing that, the camera's attached to a stunt descender rig. And so the stunt guys are pulling in the descender rig. So the cable's pulling in. The point where we let go of the camera, it's free hanging. And we had to let go very gently so that it didn't swing. As soon as we let it go, they got a cue and they had to drop the descender so that the whole camera dropped down to the bottom. But it had to be on a slight rotation so that it would spin as it went down. And so we were puppeteering that from the top as it was dropping down. As it got to the bottom, the Trojan horse arrived, which had a little scoop that the camera dropped into that was styrofoam and foam rubber. And they hit a charge and released the cable. And then the guys just pushed the camera and the camera went all the way up to the stage. And then Chiba was there on stage, pulling the camera out and going right up to Michael Keaton's face. We did two takes of it. The first take's the one in the movie. It's got some blending and fixing of the flies that were hanging above the stage, which had a bit of wobble to them. So we fixed that to make it a very smooth drop. But everything else is completely in camera. Like you said before, if you can get it in camera, do it in camera. The thing that you realize very early on in the business is that this is not a one-man shot. It's hundreds of people involved in getting one shot to the screen. And in a case like that, multiple departments with years of experience in each discipline or contributing their own little bit to making that thing work. And when, when people walk on a film set and they see like 100 people standing there, they go, why are there so many people? What are they all doing? They're all just standing around. The reality is that those people are waiting for their one second when their bit has to work. They wait and they wait. You, you spend a lot of time on a film set waiting. But when it's your time, you go in, you do your bit and you step back. And provided you did your bit at the right time in the right way, it's invisible and it works. We're getting toward the end of this. What's your life like these days? What's going on with Adam Howard? And then I want to talk about your painting. Okay, like 42 years later, I'm still visual effects supervising. I did a, a great little psychological thriller last year called Fear of Rain that we shot here in Florida. We did all the visual effects work at Mel's up in Montreal, but I ran all that from here because it was all during COVID. We had to work out a whole new way of working where we couldn't be on set, we couldn't be in post, we couldn't travel. So we did everything remotely. We did another film with Justin Long called Lady of the Manor. And I'm just in talks with people about different projects. Most recently, I was in the Dominican Republic shooting a movie, which I won't mention now. We shot in the water tank at Pinewood Studios in the Dominican Republic for three and a half months. And that was an amazing experience, building a huge set piece in the middle of this 20-foot deep water tank, working with scuba camera crews and really extraordinary people. I'm just talking to people about other opportunities now. So yeah, that's what's happening. Your paintings are some of the most extraordinary portraiture ever created. Thank you so much, mate. I've been drawing and painting my entire life. I've been drawing faces for 50 years, and I'll be 60 this year in November. So I've been drawing since I was a little kid. But the one thing that's always fascinated me the most were human faces. Even though there are really kind of a finite number of details in faces, when you combine them, there's just a multitude of possibilities. And all the subtlety of light and shade and reflectivity and all that stuff all comes to the forefront when you're doing a human portrait. Somebody that you all know, Misty Segura Bowers from ILM, an amazing visual effects person in her own right, a few years ago, decided that she was 
going to leave visual effects and get to spend more time at home with her daughter and her husband. And she'd pursue portrait painting. She paints amazing watercolor portraits. I was completely inspired by her work. Around 2017, I decided I'm just going to start drawing portraits. And I was doing them, combination of color pencil, markers, and sun paint. Very much inspired by the poster art of Drew Struzan and Mark Ratz, particularly those two guys, who are both friends of mine, especially Mark, who's a great guy, South African guy, lives in Perth in Australia, does a lot of the Star Wars and Indiana Jones posters, legend. I was doing color pencil portraits for a long time, and then Adobe came out with a brand new software tool in their package called Fresco, and I was one of the first people to use Fresco. It took all the best paint elements of Photoshop and plugged them off into their own distinctly paint-based app for iPad. I've been painting my portraits on iPad since then. I have so much fun doing them. They're painted brushstroke by brushstroke. There's no automated anything. They're completely created from scratch. I wish I could make money out of them. I tend to paint celebrities unless somebody commissions me to do something. I paint celebrities because everybody knows what they look like. I did one recently of Michael Keaton, and it was Michael in the center, but surrounded by a bunch of his different characters, like Batman and Beetlejuice and Birdman, Mr. Mom and all those things. And when they look at a portrait and they go, oh, wow, it's Michael Keaton. Going back to Linwood Dunn, if you're invisible, it works. My challenge always is to keep training my eye to just keep on trying to make stuff look photoreal. The portraits I do are not photoreal in the sense they look like a photograph. They're definitely painted, but they need to absolutely, without question, be the person. The reality of a human face is that when you're drawing it, you can be 2% off and it doesn't look anything like that person. I was doing painting a few years ago with my mother and it was bugging the hell out of me because it didn't work. And I kept on looking at it going, what the hell is it? It's not right. I was using the photograph as reference. And so I put the photograph down and I thought, what is it about mum that I remember? My mum's still alive, very much so. She's in Melbourne still. And I remember that she, on her bottom eyelid, she just has these tiny little reflections of like wateriness on the bottom of her eyelid. And I looked at the painting. I said, oh, that's not there. And so I got a tiny little paintbrush and I got some white paint and I just went, dunk, dunk, put two little dots on each eye. She was real. Using photographs, I use that to get the dimension. Absolutely right. Beyond that, it's just a selection process of what you put in and what you don't put in. Have you ever made prints large and had a gallery show? I've had a few gallery shows, only of the originals. I had some big prints made recently because I was invited by a dear friend of mine, Exile Emma, to do some portraits for the 40th anniversary party of Empire Strikes Back. They had the party at the old Colonel Lot on sea stage. I did one of Richard Edland and one of Dennis Muren and one of Phil Tippett and one of Anthony Daniels and C-3PO and one of George. We had them printed up like movie poster size. They were spread out over tables there and I've got some great photos of Richard looking at his portrait. I've not had a show of these ones yet, but I want to do that. I will eventually. I'm working on one right now of Robin Williams, another hero of mine who I, I got to meet a couple of times. It's so much fun to, to see it all come together. and I hope people like it. I can't believe that you can't figure out a way to monetize those. I see one of those and I go, this should be selling for $50,000. From your mouth to God's ears. Let's do it. All right. Knock, knocking on some wood here. This has been absolutely loads of fun. I think it's going to be really fun for our listeners as well. And parting words, where do you see yourself in the big picture timeline? The one thing I'm pretty sure of is that I will never retire. You have to love what you do. You need to be inspired by it every day. You need to get great passion out of doing it. I love my job. I have always loved my job. 
I, I love creating art, whether it's a painting or whether it's an effects shot. It's all the same thing. Art is everything. Uh, art is in everything. My great thrill in visual effects is sitting in a theatre when a film's finished and knowing what the intent of a shot was as far as the audience is concerned, but never knowing whether that intent is actually going to be fulfilled until you're sitting with an audience. And when you do something that's supposed to be a, a specifically funny moment and like 700 people all crack up laughing at the same time, there's no better feeling than that. You know, again, you're a huge team working on creating that moment. The thing I say to kids who are starting off, never give up, never, ever, ever give up. Don't listen to the naysayers. There are going to be plenty of people who will tell you you cannot. And what I have found in life is that the people who say you cannot are the people who did not. Just keep on going. Believe in yourself. Do it. Awesome, my friend. Thank you so much for giving me so much of your time. Such a great time talking with you and catching up again. Oh, thanks. All right, Ed. Appreciate it. Bye. Bye-bye.